Davis. Her season's going to end on a double doink. One. Unbelievable. The Olympics, Euros, baseball, and major championships and concerts are all this summer. You know what isn't? A wild and hairy bush. Tame your pubes with help from our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Their fourth-generation performance package includes the brand-new Lawnmower 4.0. If an athlete treats their body like royalty, why not treat their pubes like the Olympic gold medal? Fellas. Do right by your balls and join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com using code DOINK. The world is starting to open up and the performance package 4.0 from Manscaped is here to help you get ready. Inside, you'll find their brand new lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, the crop preserver, ball deodorant, crop reviver toner, plus two free gifts, performance boxer briefs, and the shed travel bag. Talk about world-class discount. It's the post-quarantine world. This package is the perfect package for your package and peak performance in whatever sport you desire. The brand new lawnmower 4.0 is here to take the podium. This fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The lawnmower 4.0 has 7,000 RPM motor. A new multifunction on and off switch can engage a travel lock and gives the ability to turn the 4,000K LED spotlight on and off when needed. For a more precise shave. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Michael Phelps is drooling over the possibilities. Get 20% off and free shipping using code DOINK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping using code DOINK at manscaped.com. We also want to thank BetterUp for sponsoring today's episode. Not everyone is someone they can lean on and talk to. That's where BetterUp comes in. With BetterUp, you have access to over 20,000 professional licensed therapists. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. BetterUp will assess your needs and match you with your own professional licensed therapist. If you've ever searched for a counselor in your area, you know it can take weeks or even months just to get a phone call back. With BetterUp, you can start communicating in as little as 48 hours. BetterUp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. You deserve to prioritize your mental health this year, so get 10% off your first month at BetterUp.com. podcast. We want to thank BetterUp for sponsoring Today's episode, the last sponsor of the day is Coolbet. Coolbet is the most transparent gaming company in the world. Coolbet also provides the best odds in Canada with world-class customer service. For first-time users, use the puzzle code DOINK, D-O-N-K, DOINK, for a 100% welcome bonus of $200 when signing up with Coolbet. That's code DOINK, and Coolbet will match your first deposit up to $200. Give our friends at Coolbet Canada a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Coolbet Canada. Coolbet, stay cool and bear responsible. And welcome back to another episode of the Double Doing Podcast. My name is Brendan Deke. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button. It would be greatly appreciated. You can also rate the podcast and review the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. 
would also be greatly appreciated. Really looking forward to today's episode. I have a really cool guest lined up for us today. I am joined by Lee Steinberg. He is a living legend himself. He has negotiated over $3 billion in contracts in the sporting world, MLB, NFL, you name it. He has done it. He is also the um, – he is the – I guess, Lee, what would you say? Jerry Maguire was based off after you? Is that the right way to describe it? Probably based off, based on stories I told Cameron Crowe. There we go. Okay, we'll dive into that. But my guest today is Lee Steinberg. Lee, how are we doing today? Doing great. Doing great, doing great. Okay, why don't we start from the beginning, Lee? Um, I want to talk about your childhood. So you were uh, born and raised in the L.A. area. Um, Lee, kind of tell me about what your childhood was like. And were you a sports fan growing up? Oh, I was. And uh, my father took me to UCLA football. He had had my parents had five degrees between them from UCLA. So we would go watch the basketball and the football. And then, of course, when the Dodgers came to Los Angeles, I fell in love with them. They won the World Series the second year and loved the Dodgers, loved the Angels and the Lakers and and all things uh we ended up having two of everything like Noah's Ark uh, mm-hmm. pro teams in every sport. So I did fall in love with um, with all that. But Sandy Koufax and Maury Wills back in the day were my great heroes. Um, my dad raised us with two core values. <clears throat> One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who couldn't help themselves. So uh, I was hardwired from birth to try to get out and and heal people's pain and help people who couldn't help Mm -hmm. themselves. And uh, my father was a high school principal. My mother was an audiovisual librarian. And um, we uh, two brothers, and uh, we uh, we grew up in uh, West Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s, and then I went off to UCLA for a year and then to Berkeley. So back, to, just quickly, want to touch back on your childhood. So were you were you always a good negotiator? Were you the guy in class negotiating for the brownie? Maybe switching switching snacks with the kid next to you, getting that brownie for maybe the carrot sticks. Like, <laughs> were you always negotiating? Always in your blood as a kid. Well, I think that the most important skill in all of that is the art of listening. If you can draw another person out and understand what their value system is um, and put yourself in touch with their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams, you can navigate your way through life. If you can put yourself into another person's heart and their head and see the world the way they see it, then you can navigate your way through life uh, effectively. So uh, I was always interested in other people and trying to draw them out and understand um, and peel back the layers of the onion and try to get deeper. So whether it was friendships or romance or student politics, it was always about that. It's it's really being able to to pierce the the veil that people put over themselves and to understand what really is going to fulfill them. Okay, so you mentioned that you uh, that you went to UC Berkeley. Why don't you just quickly um, tell my audience what you went to school for? And then on top of that, did you when did you know that you wanted to become a sports agent? Never uh, until I was one. Because <laughs> it wasn't really a field. At the time I started, you could okay. – uh, 
there was no guaranteed right to negotiate. So a team like the Cincinnati Bengals could just slam down the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. Interesting. Okay. I did not know that. No field to aspire to. So I knew uh, uh, Berkeley in those days was the uproarious 1960s and it was long hair and tie dye and rock music <laughs> and, and anti-Vietnam war. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up student body president and the governor at that time was a man named Ronald Reagan. And um, every time we demonstrated, he cracked down. So I learned everything I needed to learn about the art of negotiating from dealing with uh, wow. governor, later President uh, Reagan. Interesting. And, uh, but I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dormitory, working my way through law school. And the, the freshman football <coughs> team into the dorm and one of the students was the quarterback on the team, Steve Bartkowski. Yep. So I was looking to make a difference in the world, go out and fight for civil rights or do something socially effective. And um, before I ever got there, <clears throat> or, and I had an offer from the DA's office and some offers in <clears throat> what's called corporate litigation, but I never got a chance to get there because in March of 1975, maybe it was February, um, the quarterback at that point had had been drafted and was the number one pick overall in the draft. That was and 75, right? Was it 75? Yeah. 75. And asked yeah. me to represent him. So really? There I was, um, Brendan, uh, overwhelming uh, talents and experience uh, yeah. just having practiced and, and I had the first pick in the first round and we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history and uh, but I saw then that athletes were the idol worship athletes were the venerated people and I thought well I can take my dad's core values about making a difference and if these athletes would go back and retrace their roots and go to the high school um community that helped nurture them mm -hmm. they set up a scholarship fund or a boys and girls club and lay down roots and always have a home and i thought well then if they went back to the college where the alums relate to the school primarily through the football or basketball program if they set a scholarship fund up like uh, troy aikman did at ucla or edger and james at the university of miami or uh, kerry collins at penn state they could join that community, be mentored by those alums. And then at the pro level, could we put a program together that would take some core uh, uh, condition in the world that an athlete would like to tackle and improve and put together a charitable foundation with leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders on their board. Mm -hmm. and so that's work done putting the 200th single mother and their families since the first home they'll ever own. Yeah. Um, and I also saw athletes good brands. So later when I represented um, the heavyweight champ, Lennox Lewis, he cut a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. And that could do more to trigger imitative behavior, especially in rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could wow that's super interesting so i want to sorry i got to go back to the ronald reagan thing i that just caught my caught my attention so he would, would did you ever like physically debate him like in person 
Yeah, yes, I did. Uh, there came a time where uh, Nixon invaded Cambodia, okay. and the campuses all took the classes off campus and, and in protest. And Governor Reagan didn't like that very much. It was a public university, and, and it was in rebellion. So we went in front of the Board of Regents, and at one point he looks at me and he says, so I'm trying to defend the chancellor who he's trying to fire. Mm-hmm. And he says, weren't you the same Mr. Steinberg that was arrested in 1960 sitting in front of uh, troop trains in Oakland? And I said, well, Governor, I was about 10 years old, and I was much closer to playing with toy trains and troop trains, but that shows your usual adherence to veracity and fact. Yeah. <laughs> I got it going. And But later in the White House, he gave me a, a human uh, uh, rights uh, commendation, and we laughed about it. But it wasn't so funny in uh, yeah. 1970. That's super interesting. Okay, so I want to talk. So Steve, I want to talk about like your kind of the beginning of you being an agent. So Steve was your very first client right off the bat. How old were you at that time? 25. 25 years old. Did you, what experience did you have before that to kind of jump into being the first overall picks agent? Like did, what did you, what did you like take a course in in school? Like what did you kind of have to kind of help you do that and help him, uh, I guess, get the money that he deserved? The fact that I'd been involved in student politics and and understood things politically. And so what I didn't understand about the structure of contracts and everything else, which was everything, mm-hmm. uh, I, I did understand the concept of leverage. And, and there was a World Football League competing against the NFL at that time. So he had two choices. So... The reality is, would he have wanted to play in the World Football League? Probably not. But um, if if the offer was life altering and life changing, you know, like later we did with Steve Young or Mahomes, then that would be a different situation. So um, we were able to double what they had locked down on as an offer, and it, and it eclipsed Joe Namath and O.J. Simpson, who had been the previous standard bearers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you think that him being your first client kind of set you up for the success that you would have? Like a lot of agents, like their first clients are, are maybe players that don't get drafted and, and whatnot. Do you think that maybe just having a high-profile client like Steve kind of maybe like peddled you for success? Yes, because – Players like to be represented by someone who represents similarly situated players. And mm-hmm. so they see themselves in a different way. And if you can start, for example, at the quarterback position, which I ended up one weekend representing half of the starting quarterbacks. Yeah. But if the first pick in the draft is a model, then later when I did had a run where six out of seven years, I had the very first player in the first round in football. And then we went into baseball and basketball and other sports. Um, but they're looking for who the, an athlete's looking for who they model themselves after. And if it can, when you see the first pick, it's a record breaking contract, then, um, but what I had to learn to do was profile clients. I learned that this whole role modeling approach was not going to appeal to everyone. And what I needed to be able to do was to, to figure out what type of athlete I might appeal to. And that mm-hmm. would be more effective. Interesting. 
Okay, so when did so you have so you have your first client Steve, and then how did things start growing? Like when did you kind of realize like okay, I got something here. I have a legit company. Was there a certain player that you signed that maybe this clicked in your brain, or was it like a certain date? Kind of tell me like how the wheels started turning for you to become one of the biggest, the biggest sports agent in history. So um, in 1976, I had a, a a year that would be good, I guess, for a lot of people, but wasn't multiple first rounders. And then I adjusted, and I said, you know what? If I can just profile correctly and find people I can relate to. So let's limit the number of players that I talk to. And, uh, but let's have a higher percentage of the people that you actually sign. Mm -hmm. So that started to break loose in 77. I had an athlete, Ted Albrecht, who was a first round draft pick. In 1978, I had two that were uh, first round draft picks and, and it sort of, uh, built from there. And then I had certain schools where we had special relationships, like living here in Los Angeles, or now I'm in Newport Beach, UCLA, SC, we're producing steady streams of first round uh, athletes. And, and that was fortunate. And I'd gone to Cal and they were producing, you know, the, the Chuck Muncie's of the world. Um, it was a high draft pick. And, and so it started building that way, and um, and then as we started doing the community and charitable programs, there was focus on second career. Could you find mentors in that collegiate alumni group that would help you in business? Could mm-hmm. you visualize a second career as uh, an executive in sports, a coach, a business person, and what could we do to prepare for that? So that model uh, ended up, uh, you know, growing and growing. And then in 1984, uh, Warren Moon was ready to come back from Canada to enter the National Football League. And he was the first true free agency, free agent, because they had an option clause in contracts at that point where the player would have to play for a 10% raise if he couldn't reach a new agreement. And it meant that the player never had any freedom ever. So Warren comes back and three different leagues are bidding on him and he signs uh, the biggest contract in history, the NFL. And then um, a month later, I did Steve Young with the USFL, who at that time signed a $42 million contract that made headlines uh, around the world and across the country. And I know these figures seem de minimis now because uh, money's so different, but um, so the combination of those two really got it, uh, uh, took it to another level. And then the next year I had four of the first 12 picks in the first round. So you, I think, was it, you have, you've had a record eight NFL first round draft picks, correct? Yes. And yeah. you know, what's more gratifying 12 players in the pro football hall of fame. Yeah. Um, okay, so you when did you sell your firm? So you made a, you had a firm with two other people, I believe, correct? You guys sold it for one hundred and twenty million dollars. Is that is that correct? And that was uh, in the year two thousand. Year two thousand. There was that across the country, different firms were trying to get into sports, and they didn't want to buy a pro team for what now is five billion dollars. So 
what they looked at is if you get aggregate enough athletes in football, baseball, basketball, hockey, tennis, golf, other sports that would produce a powerful marketing arm where you could market a team, a league, an individual, a coach, and and there would be all that revenue. And then ultimately content, sports theme, motion pictures, television, video games. So it was a roll up and um and so I went out and bought a series of uh, sports um, agencies, you know, another one in football, hockey, uh, basketball, which had top players. Um, but then that group went public at a certain point that had bought us, and they didn't want to be in the sports industry anymore. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so you, um, I want to talk about the TED Talk you did. So you did a TED Talk about nine years ago. Um, why don't you uh, why don't you summarize to the audience about what that TED Talk was about? Because I gave it a listen last week and it was awesome. It was one of the better TED Talks I've ever listened to. And um, yeah, how did this how did that all? Well, I think I think I uh, talked about the fact that I had a father who said, "When there comes a time when you see a problem to fix, as minor as picking something." trash up off the floors, major as climate change or racism. The tendency is to look around for they or them, older people, political figures, experts, and to keep waiting for someone else to do it. And political figures, older people, business people. And my dad would look at me and say, you know, you could wait forever, son. You are the they. The they is you. So we talked about the capacity of anybody to take charge of their own life and, and, and enhance it. And um, I think I probably talked about how I got started and, and the economics and the stunning nature of teams that when I started made $2 million from the national TV contract and last year made $200 million. And in the midst of a cratered economy, with the pandemic, CBS and Fox raised their offers for the next 10 years by 83% or almost doubled it. And so sports are now rolling in revenue from television, from new stadia, from naming rights, from jumbo scoreboards, from fantasy sports, from um, in every possible way. And so um, it, uh, when people look at big contracts and, and worry about the future of sports, teams are only paying those contracts because they're rolling in revenue. Yep. And, um, um, uh, and I think I might've talked about my crusade against con concussion yep. and brain in, uh, injury that uh, I had a crisis of conscience back in the 19, 80s, late 80s, early 90s, because my players kept getting hit in the head. And when we would you go, were, to you were like the one of the first people that was kind of advocately against it, right? You were one of the first public kind of known people that didn't play in the game to kind right. of go against concussions. Right. And so we, I thought, I've got to do something. And we started holding concussion seminars back in the 90s. And the first one had Steve Young and Warren Moon and Troy Aikman and Drew Bledsoe and Rob Johnson and a whole series of players. And we brought neurologists to try to see. And a little later, um, about 
in 2006, we had Ben and Amalu and a series of neurologists, and they said, we know the number. If you have three or more, it triggers an exponentially higher rate of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, premature senility, chronic hmm. traumatic encephalopathy, and depression. And so I called it a ticking time bomb and an undiagnosed health epidemic. And we've held 17 concussion seminars and are now starting to explore if there's finally healing because the premise has been that the, the uh, concussed brain only gets worse over time. It never gets better. But now I've found a few different modalities in the biomed revolution that have the potential to cure a concussed brain. So Lee, you've, uh, again, we, we talked about at the beginning, you negotiated over $3 billion with the contract. You actually just ne helped negotiate Patrick Mahomes' contract, the richest contract in sports history. Again, congratulations on that. Is there a contract that stands out to you that you negotiate that kind of maybe still after all those years that still kind of thinks you're like, wow, that was really cool or wow, that was different, that was interesting, is, or is they all kind of just mend into one? Kind of well, tell me about maybe some cool stories about your, your time yeah, negotiating. That's who I talked about, uh, Warren Moon, because it was the first time a player had ever been a free agent. Yep. Yeah, had 12 different teams bidding on him. So we go to um, down to Houston, and Bud Adams, who's the owner, says, look at that oil, oil field. You can have an oil well there. And John Meekham, who owns the Saints, takes us out on a – boat in the uh, in the bay and says this can all be yours and you cover out to run to tampa says that's the tampa sphere you can own a floor if you sign with me wow. so it was the first time teams had to actually try to attract players yeah we draft them and then they had them forever so that was exciting and then the confluence of the usfl and the nfl um had the USFL only stayed the course, they probably would have been part of the NFL right now. But um, our, um, uh, there was an owner who wanted to play in the fall um, who later occupied a higher position in American government. Is that <laughs> who, named Donald Trump? <laughs> who wanted to play in the fall and, 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 and the league dissolved. And, um, but anyway, those are the exciting times. I, I think recognizing early on that uh, sports could be a loss leader and help a network get people to watch its Monday through Friday uh, primetime programming by pushing promos on their Sunday programming, um, that sports became a tool for network building and the rights fees were lost leader. They would never make back the money on simple rights fees that they spent for, uh, uh, excuse me, on advertising for what they spent on rights fees. So I talked to Rupert Murdoch once at our Super Bowl party and I said, you should bid on NFL uh, football. It'll build Fox. No one's watching 21 Jump Street in Beverly Hills, 90210. <clears throat> you should bid and he did and so the dollars kept exploding. So it was seeing the future. It was also an understanding that the real battle in sports was not labor versus management. Mm -hmm. I would tell owners, when we have acrimonious negotiations, uh, it just pushes fans away. Yeah. And when we have bad collective bargaining, the same, our real competition for the NFL is not labor versus management. It's 
competition for discretionary entertainment spending. Mm -hmm. So our competition is the NBA, Major League Baseball, Walt Disney World, Home Box Office, Netflix, and every other form of entertainment that people choose. And so we ought to be about building the brand. Funny, you uh like you went from so you brought up the Warren Moon contract, right? That was '84, you said, right? '84, '85. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time you saw teams actually having to pitch to players. Like the 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 teams and the owners had all the power. Nowadays, like the perfect example, Kevin Durant just requested a trade today. Now the players have basically like the way that you you probably watch go from ownership and teams have majority of the power now the power has almost translates to players and you've been able to kind of see that whole thing unfold all that was necessary was free agency mm -hmm. because once multiple bidders get into it it does two things number one the player has some power over where they're going to play based on their own uh, values and priorities so someone mm -hmm. may prize winning over everything someone else might say, oh, no, it's just the money I'll play anywhere. So you have to know in those situations what your client really prioritizes. But it, it, you're right, it restored the power. <clears throat> but now we have salary caps. So rookie negotiations in basketball and football are not where they once were with long, drawn-out wars. Yeah. All players basically get the maximum for their slot, and then they get to camp on time. Okay, so I want to talk about Patrick Mahomes. So he's probably your biggest client currently playing right now. How did you uh, how did you convince him to come um, come for you to be his representation? How did that kind of process go on? So um, Patrick Mahomes Senior was a baseball pitcher, and so he had a lot of experience in sports. And so <clears throat> what happens in those situations is um, the parents are the screeners. So the parents take this flood of agents and marketing people and, and financial planners that are approaching each potential draft pick, and they do the screening. So we met with the parents, and the values match. They wanted their son to be a role model. They wanted him to make a difference. They wanted him to have an exciting second career. So those values match. So we probably met with uh, them a couple times um, maybe three times, and then didn't really meet Patrick till the end of the season. So we always thought that Patrick was undervalued coming off a of college campus because people assumed that he was a gunslinger. And Texas Tech would be so far behind in games. If he played with a good defense in college, he would have been way more well-known, right? So the yeah. point is, is that they would give up 50 points. So yeah. he was under pressure every single drive to score. So it That's meant true, he had yeah. chances and he had to throw passes you wouldn't do if you had a more controlled situation. You weren't playing from behind. And so what they didn't understand was that he could entirely adapt because he was in, um, uh, you know, the air raid, modern passing up that he could totally adapt to a three, five, seven step drop and mm -hmm. take the ball under center and he could be a disciplined uh, quarterback. So they missed all that. But through the process of scouting, people started to become aware, not the public, but people inside football. They looked at this freakish arm and athletic ability. They looked at the leadership uh, qualities. They looked at how smart he was. They saw how he responded in pressure. And um, so it's more important to me to have a 
player at the top end of the draft go to a franchise with great ownership, great coaching, great front office stability than it is to have them go a couple picks higher. They may get a little more bonus, but then they might spend their career in misery. Mm-hmm. So it was so fortuitous that the Kansas City Chiefs that fit all of that and had a quarterback whisperer and Andy Reid were interested in him. And, of course, they traded up in the draft to get him. Now, if you're watching, you may not be aware, but if you represent players, you're talking in scouting to all the teams interested in the player. Mm-hmm. You have a rough idea of which franchises are serious about taking your client. Okay, um, last question for you, Lee, then we'll get you out on this. I got to talk about Jerry Maguire before we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, Lee, what, it's, my, it's actually my dad's, like, favorite movie. He was uh, he was all giddy when I was telling him that I was going to interview you. So, um, Lee, why don't you just tell my audience how this all com- kind of came apart? Because we do know that it's kind of based off of stories that you that you told. Um, but uh, how did, like, how, who approached you? How did the whole thing kind of come together? So Cameron Crowe was a writer-director who had gone underground in an L.A. high school to write a book called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which turned into a really hilarious movie. And so he asked if he could follow me around and go wherever I went to a variety of different locales um, and pick up atmosphere that would lead to doing a movie based on a sports agent. And he went with me to the 93 draft where I had the first pick, Drew Bledsoe. He went to the press conference. He went to uh, the league meetings for a week where I introduced him to people. But he also was a fly on the wall. And he went to pro scouting day at SC. And I told him stories, lots and lots and lots of stories. And uh, then as technical advisor, I had to vet the script to make sure that the look didn't seem phony or the dialogue didn't seem stilted. Then he signed me actors like Cuba Gooding Jr., who I took down to the um, uh, I took to uh, the Super Bowl in Arizona and I made him pretend he was a wide receiver all week. And uh, I actually had to show the quarterback in the film played by Jerry O'Connell how to throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have football there. Interesting. So it's now been 25 years and I rarely walk through an airport or go through, um, um, uh, go out to dinner where someone doesn't run up to the table and either say to me or ask me to say those four words to start with, show me the. So where did, so did that line come from you? No, it came from uh, Tim McDonald was a, uh, free agent safety and Cameron was interviewing him about what he was looking for in free agency and Lou Dobbs and Moneyline was on in the background and Tim gestured sort to screen and said, I'm looking for a team to show me winning. I'm looking for a team to show me respect. I'm looking for a team to show me economic uh, security. And Cameron wrote, show me the money. Interesting. Lee Steinberg, thank you so much for doing this. Before we go, is there anything you want my listeners to take a look at? I know you're a very charitable guy. You have a lot of foundations and stuff like that. That's part of one the reason I want to talk to you. Like you are brilliant when it comes to giving back to the community. Is there anything you want the uh, the listeners to take a look at that you got going on? We're going to have an agent academy later in the summer where you, if you're interested in being an agent or being involved in sports, um, uh, if you go to SteinbergSports.com, you can find it. Sounds good. Lee Steinberg, thanks so much for doing this, man. Really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, my pleasure. Yeah.